Good afternoon. Good morning. Uh, my name is Karen Kay, recovered compulsive eater from Syracuse, New York. And my pride is stone transferred. Welcome to this uh, this Saturday big book study with Harlan G. It is August 7th, 2021. And uh, we I left off on page 129. If the if the family cooperates, and Harlan's gonna mention if he's gonna be out of town or doing another um workshop is it coming up harlan so we can get that on no, the calendar no, no we're we good we don't okay. have anything that's going to pull me out of here for uh two months okay wonderful okay. all right we're going to give it over to harlan thank you so much karen i really appreciate your service and i appreciate all the people whose service makes this meeting possible i cannot begin to tell you how much i appreciate this we, it, is, it is a beautiful Saturday here in Arizona. If you like very hot weather, or it's not really that hot, but it's hot enough. It'll be about 106 today. But I hope it's beautiful where you are or whatever you're doing, whether you're listening to this as we're doing it or you're listening to this on a podcast. I hope it's beautiful where you are as well. And I hope you're well. It is, as Karen said, August the 7th, 2021, and we're deep into the chapter to, the, to, uh, to study uh, it, the family afterward. And, you know, this is a chapter that can get maligned. People poo-poo it. They want to skip over it. There's a lot here in this chapter. And I think that if we open up our eyes and we sort of look at it from kind of a different perspective, we're going to find that there is just a wealth of knowledge in this chapter for us to uh, glean uh, into some of the stuff and to uh, absorb it as not only being about the family, but about us as the addicts and the people around us. So with no further ado, let's go to page 129 and we're going to get started. And we're on the paragraph that starts, if the family cooperates, if the family cooperates, dad, now when they say dad, they're talking about the alcoholic. What I do when I look at this is I say me, the addict. That's all I do. We'll soon see he is suffering from a distortion of values. Now let's stop right there and let's not go any further than that because we have been talking about dad thinking he's got the answer and you better get dad's brand of spirituality or else. But when we are afflicted with the illness of addiction, and it is an illness. It is an illness of the mind, and it is an illness of the body. When we are afflicted with this, everything gets distorted. In another part of the book, it says, we who suffer from alcoholism have a distortion of value. So this is not the first time that we are introduced to this thought. And what I have a tendency to do as a compulsive overeater, I have a tendency to do two or three things and I do them so naturally, so organically that I don't even know that I'm doing them. Here are the three things that I do on a regular basis that I have to work at to undo. The first thing that I do is I catastrophize. I catastrophize everything. If somebody tells me that the pen fell 
right away that's equal to me having some serious illness or, oh my God, chicken, you know, remember the, the story of Chicken Little when we were kids? Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. I have a tendency, and I know I'm probably the only one, but I have a tendency to catastrophize. And my sponsor has to remind me all the time, I have a roof over my head, thank you, God. I have enough food in the refrigerator to carry me through, thank you, God. I have clothes on my back. I got Burton Ernie here to keep me company. I've got 104 of you so far to keep me company. I'm doing okay. I'm breathing, I'm living, I'm doing fine. So the first thing I do is I catastrophize. And there's two other things that I have a tendency to do. When he talks about the distortion of values, he is talking about me. How in the heck did he know in 1939, April the 10th, 1939, that I was going to be born in May of 1954? I don't know how they knew it, but they seemed to, because here are the other two things that I do. I make mountains out of molehills, and I make molehills out of mountains. When I was 335 pounds in high school, when I was 500 pounds as a sophomore in college, when I was 600 pounds as a graduate of college, when I was 700 pounds, when I had never been on a date and I was 35 years old, when I would go out of the house and people would laugh at me and I broke furniture, I broke chairs, I broke sofas, I broke a waterbed. I, I got stuck in cars. This minimalized, it minimized in my mind as being serious. And here's the saddest thing. I'm so good at making molehills out of mountains that I would often eat right after something really embarrassing would happen. Do you remember I've told you the story before? I've told you this story. I'm going to tell you this again. In 1971, I was a junior at Mather High School in Chicago, and I broke my ankle, and my mom took me to Edgewater Hospital, which isn't there anymore. Now I think it's condos. But anyway, if you've seen the movie Backdraft, they filmed some of it at Edgewater Hospital there. But anyway, that aside, I went to Edgewater Hospital and Dr. Bernstein, Max Bernstein, he's been dead for many, many years, Dr. Bernstein, but he was my doctor and he used to scream and holler at me and he would scream and holler at my mother and scream at my father about how fat I was. He looked over his glasses. He had those like granny glasses that were real popular at the end of the 60s. If you've seen pictures, he had these little granny glasses. Okay. And he looked over the top of the granny glasses. My mother's name was Virginia. My mother's name was Virginia. You don't hear that name too much anymore, Virginia. I don't think I, I, I only know one Virginia in my life that's still alive. You don't hear that name much. But anyway, He's, he looked over the glasses and he was casting my ankle. And now the doctors don't cast you. Now the nurses do or nurses aides do. But at that time, doctors did the casting. So anyway, he's casting up my ankle and he's screaming at my mother. 
And he says, he isn't going to live to see 30 years of age. He is 300 pounds. He is 17 years old. I just turned 17. It was, I turned 17 in May. This was, this was uh, June or, or late May of 71. I just turned 17. What did me and my mother do on the way home from the hospital? We went to the ice cream shop and ate ice cream. And while we were eating ice cream, we took a vow to each other that tomorrow we were gonna go on our diets. Tomorrow, everything was gonna be different. Tomorrow never came, never came. So I catastrophize. That's a distortion of values. Not everything that happens is bad. Not everything that happens is horrible, but that's where my mind goes. I make mountains out of molehills and I make molehills out of mountains. Many, many hundreds of times, thousands of times, things which should have, could have gotten my attention that were probably red flags from God. Hey, Harlan, pay attention. You're 300 pounds. You're 17 years old. Stop the madness. You've got an overhanging stomach and you're still in high school. You've been emasculated physically and emotionally and you're still in high school. You are the only kid in the school that has a size 50 inch waist, 48, 50 inch waist. There are, there are teachers and students in this high school and nobody has the size of clothes you have. I minimize that. I make, make molehills of mountains and mountains of molehills. So when he talks about this distortion of values, there's a deeper meaning to it. See, sometimes when I see distortion of values, I have a tendency to think what it means is I can justify crazy behavior like cheating or stealing or gossiping or something. I didn't used to spit when I talked. When you get older, this stuff happens. But anyway, um, the bottom line is this distortion of values applies very, very much to me. Let's continue. He will perceive that his spiritual growth is lopsided. And what that means is sometimes what happens is we get so into the program, we get so into spirituality that we forget that we still have to live in the world. Now, I'm not one to quote the Bible, but here's something in the Bible, not our part of it, but the New Testament that I really like. Render unto God what is God's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What does that mean? Render unto God what is God's and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What it means is, yes, there's time to sit in the synagogue or the church and pray. Yes, there are times to study Bible. Yes, there are times to, to engage in religious or spiritual practices, go to a meeting and so on. But when it says render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, what they're talking about there is you have to live your life. You have to pay your taxes. You have to buy groceries. You have to buy gasoline. You have to pay rent. You have to pay a mortgage. 
you have to make whatever payment you are obligated to make, you must make. So when it says here that the spiritual growth is lopsided, what he's talking about here is you have to put things in perspective. And this is, again, one of the reasons that I have a sponsor. I've been in this program 42 years. I have 22 and a half years of abstinence. You might think, well, well I don't need a sponsor. I'm a big deal. I'm this. And I, I call How are you doing? Oh, somebody's out there talking. I call my sponsor every single day. And the reason that I call my sponsor is because I catastrophize. I make mountains out of molehills and I make molehills out of mountains. Is that ever going to stop? I couldn't tell you. Is it stopped yet? No. It's better than it was. Much better than it was. I claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. But what I can tell you is sometimes, all the time, sometimes, all the time, I catastrophize. I make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains. If you do too, stick around. We're going to study this further. That for an average man like himself, a spiritual life which does not include his family obligations, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, may not be so perfect after all. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about balance. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about balance. Okay? Now, some of you might say, well, I've got little kids or I'm getting married in October or I'm, I'm, I've got a sick husband or a sick mom or a sick dad. You don't understand. I have to find the time every day to practice my spirituality and my program. And I have to find time every day to live in the real world that I was born into. You know, I found the time to eat Rice Krispie treats. I found the time to buy them. I found the time to eat them. I found the time to lie about eating them. I found the time to steal the money to buy them. I found the time to buy more of them because it triggered the physical allergy. I found the time to lie. I found the time to manipulate the people around me. I found the time to practice self-pity. Now I have to find the time to not only practice my spiritual growth, but I have to do the world too. And so I must do both every day. You know, the old multiple choice tests that you took in school? Is it A, is it B, is it C or D, all of the above or E, none of the above? We must do all of the above every day. Now, certainly, certainly there are instances where one thing will take precedence and priority over something else. No question about that. I understand that. I live in the world too. But every single day is a day when I must render unto God what is God's and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Very good expression. I always liked it. 
will appreciate that dad's current behavior is but a phase of his development. All will be well in the midst of an understanding and sympathetic family. These vagaries of dad's spiritual infancy will quickly disappear. We must learn to balance. You've heard me say this before. Do not live to recover. Recover to live. Recover to live. Don't make recovery your entire life. Make it as big and bold and wonderful as you want it to be, as you need it to be. No question in my mind, it is the way to go. But remember to make time to live your life. Very, very important. Now watch, 50 people will go hang up and head for the beach. No, stick around for a while. We're going to cover some good stuff. I'm waiting for the whole mass exodus here. Okay. The opposite may happen should the family condemn and criticize. I'm on page 129. The opposite may happen should the family condemn and criticize. Dad may feel that for years his drinking has placed him on the wrong side of every argument, but that now he has become a superior person with God on his side. If the family persists in criticism, this fallacy may take a still greater hold on father. Instead of treating the family as he should, he may retreat further into himself and feel he has spiritual justification for so doing. There's another grave danger too. It's not just the criticism that we face from others. It's often the criticism that I face from myself. I doubt that any of you are as critical of me as I am of myself. I often am unrealistic in, in my perfectionism. I am unrealistic in my expectations. Or sometimes I'm not hard enough on myself. Sometimes I let things slide. Remember, I make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains. So sometimes I need to step it up. This place, this house that I live in, it needs my attention. And I'm going to do this and I want to watch the Cub game and I'm going to go to lunch when this is over at uh, Peter Jungle in Scottsdale. Anybody that wants to join me, you're more than welcome to join me. We're in Scottsdale at 74th and Shea. You're welcome to come and join me. But the bottom line is still this, I need to clean my house, I need to do this, I need to do that. And so these things need to be done and they need to be done by me and they need to be done quickly. Very important, take care of what's in front of you. That's the message here. I didn't make it plain enough. Take care of what's in front of you. Very, very important stuff. Bottom of 129, Though the family does not fully agree with dad's spiritual activities, they should let him have his head. And what that means is leave him alone and let him do his God practices. Even if he displays a certain amount of neglect and irresponsibility toward the family, it is well to let him go as far as he likes in helping other alcoholics. During those first days of convalescence, this will do more to ensure his sobriety than anything else. And once again, we as the addict, we as the addict, we as the addicted people, we must remember that without abstinence, without recovery, we have nothing to give to anybody. 
We have nothing to give. And what is the best way to ensure your recovery when all other measures fail? Work with another alcoholic will save the day when all other measures fail. That's from Bill's story on page 15. Bill found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic will save the day. Though top of 130, some of his manifestations are alarming and disagreeable. We think dad will be on a firmer foundation than the man who is placing business or professional success ahead of spiritual development. Don't let your spiritual development go to the background. And don't let your business go to the background. Once again, what's the word that he's talking about here without ever saying the word? Balance. You got to balance out your life. And that's often so hard for us because we doubt the decisions we often make. We sometimes will make the decision to go east or west, and then we just question ourselves and question ourselves. And what happens a lot of times is that's why we love people pleasing so much. And that's in my first marriage or my only marriage so far, what would happen? I would let my wife make every decision. Is that because I'm so wonderful of a guy and I'm so great and I'm such a wonderful husband? Heck no. The reason that I loved it when she made every decision is because I could never be held accountable for any decision that went bad. So that was my motivation. I, I said, oh, I don't want to fight about it. I don't want to argue about it. You decide. That was cowardice on my part. I had opinions. I had thoughts. I kept them to myself out of fear. What was I afraid of? I was afraid that if I asserted myself and said, let's do red instead of green or yellow or whatever it is, then she would run away and leave me. Well, look at me now. I'm single as can be. She's been gone 11 years. It didn't work out so well. Now did that. So we have a situation where what we're being told to do is to balance. And then it says he will be less likely to drink again and anything is preferable to that. Do what you need to do to stay out of the food. Whatever that may mean, that's what you have to do because that's my bottom line. Am I in the food eating or not? If I'm in the food, my business suffers, my personal relationships suffer, I become a prey to misery and depression, I start becoming a Baylor fan, and those fans at Baylor are completely out of control since they won the NCAA basketball title. Now these fans are completely crazy. They've, they've gone insane. But the bottom line is, if I am true to myself, I know that abstinence must come first, but I also have to balance life out. Let's continue. We're on 130, first full paragraph. Those of us who have spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe, we're going to come back to that, have eventually seen the childishness of it. 
This dream world we, has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, accompanied by a growing consciousness of the power of God in our lives. We have come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where we, where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We have found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy uselessness. What's he talking about there? You know, when I was a little boy, a young boy, this is what was told to me by everyone that I knew, be they eight or 80, male, female, Whatever it is they were, this is what they told me. Lose weight and everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. The world will bow at your feet. They didn't tell me that, but that was the message that I received. I lost weight here and there as a child. I started dieting when I was about six. I went on my first diet, I was probably five or six years old at the time. I tried not to eat a candy bar. You know those, when they have like bands or school projects and they have those big candy bars. At the time they were a dollar, which was like a candy bar was five cents. And these were a dollar. And they came in that white, that white paper wrapping. And I tried not to eat it. And that lasted about 14 seconds. I couldn't do it. And I ate that damn candy bar. And I triggered the allergy and I was off to the races. That was the first time I tried to use my willpower not to eat something. It did not work then. It won't work now. Now, here is what the lie is that he's talking about here. And he talks about this dream world. What are we talking about a dream world? The dream world is if dad gets sober, everything is going to be okay. Now, there's an old expression in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the old expression is you sober up a horse thief. Now you got a sober horse thief. No matter what problems I had before I lost the weight, I still had. Maybe I didn't have a size 80 waist. Maybe I didn't need a size seven extra large shirt or an eight extra large shirt. But everything about my life was still the same. The girl that didn't like me back still didn't. The sports teams that I rooted for still didn't win. The people that I wanted to like me, some of them still didn't. So you get the picture. And in when he's talking about this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose, what is the purpose? <clears throat> Page 77 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you are on vision, we're going to read that on Monday. It's going to be the very first sentence we read. It says on page 77 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I have a sense today 
of the purpose of my life. I never had that before. I never had a knowledge of why I'm here. Why did I survive? Why did I survive when doctors told me I would not? Why am I still alive? I'm 67 years old. I'm 67 years old. There are doctors that have been pronouncing me dead since I was 17. Doctors have been writing my death certificate for decades. And I'm still here. Why am I here? I'm here so that I can tell you about my life and maybe if you can glean just a little nugget that will help you, and if I've helped one of you, then everything was worth it. I went through a lot of hell to get here. Oh, did I go through hell? Oh, did I go through loneliness and fear and anger and alienation and never being able to belong to a family, never being home? Never being home, because I don't have brothers and sisters and all. I don't have that. I'm always the one that's like family, sort of, kind of, almost. Why did I go through that? So I could maybe help one of you. And if I can help one of you, then it becomes worth it. I didn't think it was worth it at the time. But I know that one day, when I cross over that bridge, somebody will say to me, good job, good job. As long as I keep going the way that I'm going, somebody will say, good job. So that is your charge. That is what you need to do. Think in terms of what the big book is teaching you. It says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Whether you're six or 60, whether you have 15 brothers and sisters or you have no brothers and sisters, whether you are white or black or Jewish or Protestant or Catholic or whatever you are, Buddhist or Muslim, it doesn't matter. In the final analysis, what will be asked of you is what was your donation, not your duration. I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about, did you give your time? Did you give of yourself to the suffering? There's 144 of you on the line right now. I'm gonna take a guess here. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to take a guess. Not one of you came in here on a roll. None of you woke up in the morning and said, wow, my life is fantastic. Oh my God. I have a wonderful spouse. I, my kids, they're fantastic. We have more money than we can count. I think I'll join OA. I don't think that's how you got here. You got here 
because nothing went well for you. You got here because life sucked. You got here because everything that you had tried failed. You got here because life was becoming unlivable. Pain drove you here. Pleasure did not. Pain humiliated you. Pain struck you down and you could not escape this disease. It is permanent, it is progressive, it is fatal. It is permanent, it is progressive, it is fatal. And if your recovery efforts are not permanent and progressive, you will die from this disease. That's a promise. Not from me, but from chapter three of the big book of AA. If your efforts at recovery are not permanent and progressive, you will die in this disease. What was your donation? But you have to keep in perspective that you must render unto God what is God's and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What does that mean? You have to live in the real world. Take care of your business or your job or whatever, your house or whatever it is you do. Take care of these things. Pay your taxes, pay your bills, do what you need to do. And then you have a responsibility to help others because that's the only way you can survive. You are not going to get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You will get this program by transmitting spiritual information. Transmitting means you help others. Let's continue. I hope that's making sense so that these paragraphs, you can look at them in a different way so that this is not a chapter that you join in the chorus of poo-pooing. We had to have a vote to see if we even wanted to do these chapters. I hope that no matter how you voted, you're glad that we did them because I'm hoping that you're getting something out of this chapter and, and to wives and then to the employers. I'm hoping you will. It's about balance. Let's continue. We're on page 130. One more suggestion, whether the family has spiritual convictions or not, they may do well to examine the principles by which the alcoholic member is trying to live. In other words, examine the steps I don't care who you are or what you do, but if you have people circling around you that you are hoping to God and it's in your writing and it's in your prayers and it's, you've given it to your God box. I hope everybody has a God box, it's not in the big book, but I have a God box. And what I do, I have always have paper around me. Somebody, and I don't remember who, sent me a very beautiful gift. They sent me little writing pads with my name on there. That was, that was cute. I really appreciated that. So here's what I can do. I can write something about pray for Joe. And then I'll take this. I'll tear off the sheet of paper. You can't see it. And I don't want to turn my computer around. But I have a God box that's up on top of that filing cabinet. Yes, I still have a filing cabinet. I have a very old-fashioned kind of business. I have a filing cabinet. 
And there's a box and on the box is God, which is written God. And it's my God box and I'll put that in there. And the reason I put that in there is because it physically teaches me to give things to God because I can't handle them. Well, why I'm talking about that is this. We have people, oh, I wish Joe would work the steps. Oh, I wish Mary would work the steps. Oh, I wish the Baylor fans would get mental health care. Oh, I wish this or I wish that. The truth of the matter is, is that if you want to call us, here's what we're going to tell you. When you ask us, what can I do to help Joe work the steps? Here's what you can do to help Joe. Recover. Recover and recover. You help Joe, Sam, Mary, Cindy, whatever, whoever, you encourage them to work the steps best when you work them yourself to show others what these steps are doing for you is the best way for you to be an example of this way of life. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. So in other words, what is frothy emotional appeal? Frothy means it lacks substance. Think of the foam of a beer. When I was a vendor at Wrigley Field and White Sox Park and Soldier Field, we used to sell, we didn't sell beer at Soldier Field then, but we, at Sox Park and Cubs Park, we used to sell beer. And some guys would say, put a big head on my beer. And some guys would say, don't put a big head on my beer. So you have to pour a little differently so that there is either a big one or not one much of one at all. And then they would you know, appreciate it. And sometimes they would show their appreciation with a tip, but that's no substance. Frothy emotional appeal sometimes seldom suffices. Show them what this program is doing for you. Don't talk to them so much about it. Show them, show them how you live. Show them how you eat. Show them how your life is better because of this program. What's the best teacher in the world? A good example. A good example. There's, there's a business leader. He wrote a book. One of the first lines of the book is what the world needs now is not more managers. It needs more examples to follow. It needs better examples to follow. Very, very interesting line of the book. Let's continue. They can hardly fail to approve these simple principles, though the head of the house still falls, still fails, sorry, somewhat in practicing them. Nothing will help the man who is off on a spiritual tangent so much as the wife who adopts a sane spiritual program, making better practical use of it. When the family starts adopting these steps, it elevates everybody. It elevates everybody, but you can't control who's going to work this and who's not. Stop trying to control the things you cannot control. Let's continue. I'm at the bottom of 130. There will be other profound changes in the household. Liquor incapacitated father for so many years that mother became head of the house. She met these responsibilities gallantly. By force or circumstances, she was often obliged to treat father as a sick or wayward child. Even when he wanted to assert himself, he could not. 
for his drinking placed him constantly in the wrong. When you're using, when you're using food, you don't think of yourself as being drunk. Some of you are alcoholics and some of you are drug addicts and you became compulsive overeaters first or you noticed there was a problem afterwards. I don't know. I don't know the order of your, of your dissension. But here's what I can tell you. We hear people saying, oh, you can work the steps while you're eating. False. That flies in the face of everything Dr. Silkworth has ever said. Three times in the doctor's opinion, what does Dr. Silkworth tell you? Put down the food. Put it down. Stop. The only remedy we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And he says that three times in different ways. But what is one of the reasons that we have to put the food down? Is it just because it tr keeps triggering the physical allergy? That's part of it. But what we don't realize is when we're in the food, we're altered. We're not really there. We don't think of ourselves as being drunk. We, don't, we maybe don't think of ourselves as being altered. I mean, what is a chunky bar? World's finest. Those were those chocolates. World's finest, those candy bars. Sorry, that's how my brain works. World's finest were those big chocolate bars that they used to sell like for the schools. Anyway, sorry, that's how my brain works. I wish it was different too. It's not. Okay. Now, we don't think of milk duds as being mind altering, but for us, they are. For a normal person, no. We're getting an effect from that food and that effect changes our perception of reality. It doesn't do that for normal people. Bert and Ernie sitting right here beside me, when Bert and Ernie eat Frosted Flakes or they eat Milk Duds or they eat whatever they eat, Doritos, whatever they eat, they eat a few and they're good. They're done. I've watched them do it. They live here with me. I've watched them do it. And Bert and Ernie have a normal relationship with food. I don't. Milk Duds instantly changes my perception of reality. And it doesn't heighten my perception of reality. It alters it so that I will catastrophize, make mountains of molehills and molehills of mountains. That's why this chapter is so important. Let's continue. I'm at the top of 131. Mother made all the plans and gave directions when sober father usually obeyed. Thus mother through no fault of her own became accustomed to wearing the family trousers. Father coming suddenly to life again often begins to assert himself. This means trouble unless the family watches for these tendencies in each other and comes to a friendly agreement about them. And so all of a sudden the addict whether it's father, mother, the dog, the cat, or the parakeet, I don't care who it is, whatever. The addict all of a sudden has a short burst of abstinence. Now they want to reassert themselves in the family hierarchy. And this is going to create problems. We have to have a clear understanding that we were on the sidelines, not because other people pushed us out, they pushed us out because there was no survival without 
somebody taking the somebody has to sit down and write the check for the bills somebody has to sit down and make a shopping list and go to the store and get what's on the list somebody has to make sure that we were invited to a wedding that we at least send a gift and respond somebody has to do these things and the addict cannot in most cases do them. Sometimes they can, but most of the time they can't. Let's continue. I'm on 131. Drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Now I'm going to speak to that for just a minute. In an abusive relationship, a relationship that is physically abusive, hitting torture, emotional abuse, physical abuse. What is the very first thing that the abuser does to the abused? They separate them from their support system. They start complaining that they don't like your brother. They don't like your sister. They don't like when your family comes over so often. They don't want to go to visit your family. They want to keep you isolated. They don't want your friends coming over. They hate your friends. They think your friends are a bunch of witches. They don't want your friends over here. The first thing that an abusive relationship will do is isolate the abused. Compulsive overeating is the most abusive relationship known to man. What does the food do first? It isolates you from everyone and everything you know. You stop accepting invitations. You don't like the way you look. Your clothes don't fit. You're afraid to go out with the ladies. You're afraid to go out with the guys because you're afraid of what you look like. You start isolating, hoping against hope that maybe one day after you lose weight, you'll call your friends and go out with them. And it goes this way for years and years. And we start falling out of these relationships that were supportive so that the food, the liquor, the drugs, the gambling, the codependent, whatever it is you're addicted to, what's the first thing that your disease does? It isolates you from the support that you need. What is the other thing that your disease do does? It makes it so you do not want help. You're going to do this on your own. You isolated from us. The ego has three jobs. Make me right. Make me different from everybody else and make me feel good right now. I don't need those stupid meetings. I don't want to hear about this one's kid and this one's job. And I don't want to hear about this one's this. I don't want to hear it. I'm just going to, I'm just, just going to recover on my own and I can do this by myself. Anyone here ever said that? I'd be shocked if you didn't because that's this disease. This disease is the king of abusers. 
and it will beat you down. But it can't beat you down when you have an adequate support system like the fellowship of OA. This disease has trouble beating you down and killing you until it first isolates you. So when it says drinking isolates most homes from the outside world, look no further than Bill and Lois as the example. Bill and Lois had a lot of friends at one point. My drinking became continuous, which terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. He chose drinking over his Wall Street buddies. What else did Bill do? He and the Burnhams never got along, and Dr. Burnham didn't like Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson knew it and said, I don't want your dad over here. He's a jerk. I don't like your mother. I don't like your brother. I don't like your friends. He didn't, he, he isolated her. He cut her off. He's a good man. He's my hero. I love him. Look at what he did. But he isolated her effectively isolated her from her support because they kept telling her to leave his drunk ass. Dr. Burnham begged his daughter, leave this drunk guy. You're better than this. You could get a husband that's not drunk. And she said, nothing doing. I love Bill and Bill loves me. This disease will cut you off. And it tries to cut you off from us. See this phone over here? My phone? Who the hell's calling me now? Oh, okay. Um, this phone, when it comes time to make an outreach call, weighs 50,000 pounds. 50,000 pounds. I can't lift it up to dial the number. You've experienced that too. Remember that we have to work against the, the enormous action of the disease. You see, again and again, I'm going to tell you this. This disease does not just make you fat or make you thin. This disease affects every cell of your body, every atom of your body, every molecule of your body, of your soul, and of your spirit. And when you read this line on page 131, drinking isolates most homes from the outside world, that is because the king of the abusers is the addiction of alcohol or food or drugs or gambling or whatever it is you can be addicted to. And you've, every one of you has experienced it. What is it in this, what is it in our minds and our egos where we have to try every freaking wrong answer before we come into the right answer? What the hell is it? 
I mean, do I have to go and say two and two is nine, two and two is 11, two and two is 34 before I hit on two and two is four? But that's what it seems like. I've heard your stories for 42 years. On February the 2nd of next year, I will be here for 43 years. God willing, I hope I live that long. But the bottom line is for 40 plus years, I've heard you and I talk about Weight Watchers and Tops and Jenny Craig and hypnosis and uh, having the urine of pregnant women shot up your butt and having your jaws wired shut. Why is it that we keep looking at the wrong answer until we say, oh, okay, I'm circling the drain. I'm circling the drain. I haven't got a piece of clothing that fits me. I haven't got a piece of clothing that makes me look reasonably okay. I guess I'll give OA a try. Because drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Remember, guys, this is a textbook. This is not a storybook. It's not the story of a guy where drinking isolated him. It's a textbook, and it says drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. So does food. So does drugs. When I tell you that this disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal, I'm not just talking about a unilateral disease that makes you, it can't be six minutes to the hour. No way is it six minutes to the hour. Oh my God. Sorry. Anyway, this is how the disease kills you. It cuts you out. It cuts you down and it makes you feel like death is a step up from where you are. The last time I ate pizza, 1979, a day or two before the first meeting I ever went to. Actually, I've had it since then in one of my, two of my relapses. That's not true. But this is one time when I ate pizza. Somebody asked me very casually, do you want to die or do you want to live? And I said, I'd rather die. I'd rather die. I couldn't see the trees through the forest. That's what this disease does to you. This line is so important that I hope that you will highlight this sentence and underline this sentence. And I hope that you will remember this sentence. And the way to remember this sentence is to teach it to others incessantly. Page 131, drinking isolates most homes from the outside world. Father may have laid aside for years all normal activities, clubs, civic duties, sports. When he renews interest in such things, a feeling of jealousy may arise. The family may feel they hold a mortgage on dad, so big that no equity should be left for outsiders. Instead of developing new channels of activity for themselves, 
Mother and children demand that he stay home and make up the deficiency. In other words, he hasn't been behaving the way we want him to. Now he's going to, damn it. And how many of us have been guilty of that? Now that we've lost the weight, you're going to do what I want you to do. You're going to stick to my script, selfishness. Selfishness, the script. Self-seeking, manipulation. Self-seeking, selfishness, self-centered. This we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion. We step on the toes of others and they retaliate. Chapter five. Chapter five. We want everybody to stick to our script. Selfishness, self-centeredness, ego. This we think is the root of our troubles doesn't say food and liquor are the root of our troubles. It says selfishness, self, self-seeking, selfishness. This, we think, is the root of our troubles. And what happens when people don't stick to our script, including God, eating becomes a step up from where we are because we can't tolerate that feeling that life just didn't go our way. We can't tolerate that feeling and so we say, F it, I'm just going to eat. And we eat. And for about nine seconds, the world is a beautiful place. That's what Dr. Silkworth calls the effect. That sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating that food. The only problem with eating that food is the very foods that make me feel better are the foods that I'm also allergic to. And when I eat French fries and I eat milk duds and I eat whatever it is I eat, I can no longer control the amount of these things that I eat because of the physical allergy. Craving. The phenomenon of craving we think is limited to this class so that they can never safely drink alcohol in any form at all. When I go to the movies now, the only thing I might buy is cold water. It's hot here. It's gonna be 106 or 109 today. It's hot here. This is hot. I live in the desert Southwest. Sometimes I like to go to the movies, not because I wanna chow down like I used to, but it's a great way to, pass an afternoon and not, you know, it's freezing in there. You got to bring a jacket. Seriously, the theater right by my house is it's freezing cold. You got to bring a freaking jacket or a sweatshirt because they'll freeze your onions right out of there. But it's a good way to spend a little time and you're not in the heat. But I used to go to the movies and everybody else's movie was a quarter. You know, you get Whatever you get, it was 12 cents on the bus one way, 12 cents the other way. And the movie for a kid was a quarter when I was a kid. It was 25 cents. And if you were an adult, it was 90 cents. When you were a kid, it was a quarter. Well, it cost everybody else a quarter to get in the show, maybe 50 cents, whatever it was, 60 cents. It used to cost me 4 or $5 in those days. 4 or $5. Why? Because I would eat and eat 
and eat and eat. And one of my favorite things to do is extra large popcorn, extra large butter, and then take the milk duds and put them in the popcorn. Take the milk duds, take the snow caps, the raisinets, put them in the popcorn. And I used to do that all the time. I used to love that. The, the only time I think I ever ate snow caps in my life was at the show. Remember snow caps? I, maybe I'm the only one that remembers snow caps. And then there was bunch of crunch and there was a bunch of other stuff. All right. Um, let's not do another paragraph because I know, let me just write down where we are. But before I turn this back over to Sue or Karen or whoever it is, I think it's Karen, Sue or whoever, I'm going to just remind you guys that next week we are meeting. We're perfectly fine. No problem. We're going to start on page 131 with the paragraph at the very beginning, the couple at the very beginning. But before we do questions and answers, number one, if you asked a question last week, step back and let people who have not asked a question come forward. So if they are done and th there are no more questions, then you can step forward and ask one. But there's two kinds of questions I cannot tolerate or not. I can tolerate them. I don't I can't answer them. Number one is your food questions. I am 67 years old. My food plan and your food plan is probably very different. Number two, no math. Oh, no, no math questions. When I hear X and Y and angle C, my brain just goes cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. So I can't possibly answer those math questions that you may have. The only way that I passed algebra was my mother and I made Mrs. Leonard a deal that I would not take any more math beyond what I was required to take. And I stuck to that deal. I never signed up for a math class. I didn't absolutely have to take. And she passed me with a D. And I am forever grateful to her municipants. Okay, now I'm gonna turn it over to Karen or Sue. I don't know who. Karen I'll, I'll be, uh, this is Sue, I'll be, um, I'll be handling the Q&A, Harlan, and thank you again so much. Um, I don't know, 